my friend, this is not the first time I've worked in an all-white cast. It's been like a big part of my career. So if there's anything meta or cathartic about it is the fact that that's what the show is about for a change instead of like me playing some kind of like colorblind casting race neutral character. Good morning. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda Salgado. Last summer, thanks to a grant from the Knight Lenfest Local News Transformation Fund, we spoke to award-winning actor April Mathis about how she coped with the changes brought on by COVID-19 and what she thinks the future of theater in New York City looks like. Now, a year later, a lot has changed. For starters, April is back on the stage, currently starring in Help at The Shed. Help is a new play by author and poet Claudia Rankin. The work follows a black woman who moves in spaces where she frequently encounters white people. In a series of interactions, she asks them point blank about their understanding of whiteness and how they think about white supremacy. April says by doing this, Help turns the lens on race, towards white people instead of pathologizing blackness. Today, Epicenter's Mitra Kalita speaks to April about help and what it's like working in an all-white cast and how she feels about performing in person while COVID restrictions across the city begin to lift. I'm just thinking of the last time we talked and now, congratulations. Thank you. There's something quite remarkable about interviewing you about how there's no work for actors and Broadway's maybe coming back. But when we talked, it was so precarious. Yeah. And then on Sunday night to see you, you know, commanding the room, like I really, I, I was really overcome. I guess I'm also just wondering how that return has been for you. Uh, it's funny how like really what I've been missing this entire time that you can't duplicate is that, relationship with the audience. That's just, you can't do that on Zoom, can't do that on a set. This is the most like live performance I've done in, what is it, almost three years now. So yeah, it's just been remarkable, yeah, to get back to that. And uh, just kind of like working in real time with folks and like this show in particular, kind of like learning, watching, feeling, experiencing it unfold before a different audience with everything that I bring in, with everything that's going on in the day, with our cast, with the world, with the production, you know, all of that is just, yeah, this is, this is what it's like. So just to zoom out for listeners, I'm wondering if in your words, you can tell me what help is about. Help is about a Black woman who moves in spaces where she frequently encounters white people, particularly white men. And the play is her, I guess, odyssey through actually engaging these white people that she encounters, particularly in these kinds of uh, liminal spaces like airports and flights, to ask them point blank about their understanding of whiteness and how, do, how they think about white supremacy and white dominance. 
just kind of turning the lens on race toward white people instead of pathologizing blackness. And notably, it's by playwright Claudia Rankine, who is an amazing poet and she's a Yale professor and, and kind of weaves in if I'm not mistaken, she weaves in her own experience, right? Along, along yes, the way. Yes. This is based on a New York Times article she wrote about asking white men about their privilege and has since expanded to include white women in the conversation. April, yeah. what drew you to help? Actually, I did read it back in 2019. And I was a huge fan of Claudia Rankin's citizen and American lyric and uh, just fascinated by her writing and by extension, her mind and how she thinks about race and how she talks about race in this country as in America's original sin and the elephant in the room of slavery. And um, also in the context of being someone who has proximity to whiteness There was just, there's something really fascinating about where she sits in that conversation that feels germane to my own experience. And when I found out that this was happening, I was like, okay, if I'm not in it, definitely want to see it. And, you know, there was something really provocative about like, okay, here's one Black woman on stage with a sea of white people. And at the time it was as far as I know, all cis male white folks. And just visually, there was something really, really provocative and perverse about that, that I was like, ooh, and it's at the shed. And what? There's like movement? What? So just formally, something like that was fascinating to me. What's it like working with so many white people? Is there, has there been anything meta about that experience? You know, what's funny about this question is, my friend, this is not the first time I've worked in an all-white cast. It's been like a big part of my career. So if there's anything meta or cathartic about it is the fact that that's what the show is about for a change instead of like me playing some kind of colorblind casting race neutral character. If you look at my resume over the past 20 years, like, yeah, being in a room full of white people is not new to me. But having this play be about that was really exciting to me. And, you know, I could talk about like there was a lot of thought and care with the production about how to navigate that space. And there was a lot of attention paid to making it a safe, slash brave space for all of us. And I will say that that's something that like everyone in the production was keenly aware of. Yeah. Do you feel like this play centers whiteness? Do you feel like it centers blackness? I mean, how, how would you talk about that interplay among races as it, as it works out? Yeah. We've had a lot of conversations around marketing too, about does this play center whiteness I challenge that framing of it because I'm literally in the center of the marketing. I'm literally the one who speaks the most on stage. This is 
a black woman's words and thoughts and mind and gaze. And that's why I said yes. That being said, I think at the beginning, there was a lot of attention paid to um, making sure that I felt safe and supported, which I appreciated. But what we came to realize in the room is that that did not mean that the white folks in the room needed to be silent. In fact, quite the contrary. There was some stuff that people were hitting up against that needed to be voiced in the room. And I think there was a sense in the beginning of the process of let us not take up too much space as white folks and let's make sure that April has room. And, you know, I had all the room. I had like a football field. I was running back and forth, doing donuts, cartwheels. And I mean, in all candor, we did lose an actor who was part of the original white cast who, for personal reasons, decided to bow out of the show. And that kind of opened something up in the cast where I think it kind of opened up the room in a new way. And I think the white people felt more permission to talk about what the work was bringing up for them in a more candid way. I don't know if you recall, but we talked about this last time in terms of have things changed? Will things change? And that was still at the height of the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. I guess I'm just wondering, given the experience that you're in the middle of right now, what would your response to that be now? Have things changed? I guess it depends on what you look at. I'd say coming back to a full production, uh, new work theatrical process, I've noticed some changes in like, diversity, equity, inclusion, like the language we use. I I think the last production I did in 2019, I don't know if we went around and introduced our pronouns, if we use any particular pronouns. We definitely did not do a land acknowledgement like we did this time. And there was no um, intimacy coordinator like we had this time. What's an intimacy coordinator? Um, well, that I think depends on who you ask as far as like what the job description is, because in this capacity, our intimacy coordinator not only worked in the way that I'm familiar with of like helping us to choreograph scenes of physical intimacy or emotional intimacy um, among characters like, you know, something like love scenes or things like that. Um, But this person was also in the room to talk about like, yeah, more the emotional intimacy of addressing race in, in this piece. And that's what she was here for mostly. And uh, we had several sessions that to me, I could describe them best as close to like group therapy. You know, I don't, I hope that doesn't misrepresent what that experience was, but that's what it felt like to me, just a chance to like, uh, we called them community workshops where we kind of uh, level set, like how we want to speak to each other in the room, what community guidelines are, what priorities were important to people, what boundaries were important to people. And that was a big part of the process. Yeah. 
that's so interesting. Just on the play itself, I think the newsworthiness of it, you know, when I was there, I was struck that the minute you said, you know, Black women on the Supreme Court, the crowd sort of responds to that, they're cheering. On the other hand, I guess we could look at the last few years and ask the question, when have Black women not been at the center of the news cycle, right? It feels like we, we definitely are acknowledging this much. I just wondered if that has been intentional in the show, right? Did, did, was there the Supreme Court line before? Is it just that this stuff kind of is happening as 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 you're in it in real time? No, the, you know, Claudia added a lot of things. January 6th is in the piece and actually kind of shifted the trajectory of the end of the piece. You know, it radically shifted the conversation about this play not only being about can we address racism in this country by looking at whiteness for me, but also for the sake of our democracy, because that's that's what's at stake here as, as we see playing out how white supremacy is being used as a juggernaut, you know, does a does a real Republican even exist anymore? Or is it just like this party that's bolstered by white supremacy and um, its aims? So the play is asking that question now in a more pointed way than it did in 2020. Yeah. And I, I actually think that's really powerful because you go from these spaces, you know, that are kind of the ordinary, you know, the, lounge at the airport and the flight itself to this message of urgency mm-hmm. uh, and it connects it really well. Right. And that's, and that I think is um, you know, one of the things I definitely took away, um, especially in this uh, midterm election year. What's next for you? Oh, things, many things, things that have not been announced yet, but are coming. So okay, good. Good. You won't have to ask because it will be very clear. But like, I, I'll say like, I'm going to be in New York on some more stages. Good, good. Well, I'm happy to hear that. Does it feel less fragile now? We talked about economic fragility when we last talked. Does it feel like you're on firmer footing or do you still not take anything for granted? Here's the thing. No, because we are not out of this pandemic. And I, for one, am very concerned about lax COVID restrictions when we don't have any evidence that COVID is gone or is going away. I mean, we took off masks everywhere, and now BA2 strain of Omicron is making cases go up. I've seen it in my son's school. We've seen it in the theater community. Like I have to be very careful about who I see and how I see people after the show. You know, we have understudies in case we lose actors. And I will say that I am not ready for an unmasked audience. I don't think it's safe. I don't think it's safe to have to let go of vaccine requirements in crowded theaters. So yeah, no, I'm not, COVID is still 
around. And as long as COVID is still around and active, I'm not going to act like it's not. And I'm not going to feel a false sense of security that it's not around. And I can't think of it as, oh, well, now that I'm vaxxed and boosted, it'll just be like a light cold and, you know, we have to learn to live with it. No, because that's one person's experience. There's still the possibility of transmitting it to someone who's immunocompromised. That's more people than you realize. I think that's a really, I think that's a really important point. And um, I'm glad because I haven't yet heard um, an actor's perspective on some of these regulations. So I, and now I can't see a show without thinking about that. And I'm grateful for the perspective. Um, thank you. And congratulations. I'm so happy for you and thank keep you. us posted on what the next thing is. We'll, we'll just track you for the rest of your life. How's that? I'll try to keep it interesting for you. Okay. You, you so far <laughs> you've succeeded. Thank you, April. Thanks, Take, care. Take care. You can see Help at the Shed in Hudson Yards until April 10th. There are just a handful of tickets left, so make sure to grab them soon. We've linked to the schedule in our show notes. But keep in mind, we're not out of this pandemic yet. So whether you're going to see Help or another show, be respectful of the COVID guidelines and wear your mask. Protect your fellow audience members, the actors, and everyone else involved. On that note, I'll hand things over to Epicenter's community manager, Daniel LaPlaza, for today's COVID-19 update. You may have a couple of at-home COVID tests lying around by now. And with holidays and spring vacations rolling around, it's definitely a good time to use them. But before you do, make sure your at-home tests haven't expired. Yes, these tests don't last forever. The truth is, at-home tests haven't been around long enough for us to know their exact shelf life. For now, experts can only guarantee a limited window, and that varies from brand to brand. So, does this mean you should throw away any tests that are expired? Well, not necessarily. As I just said, health experts are still learning and still collecting data. This means shelf lives can be extended. For example, the shelf life of the Binex Now tests was originally 12 months but the manufacturer recently announced that's been extended to 15 months. So, before you throw away any tests, look for announcements of extended shelf lives. Make sure to compare that window with the date of manufacture that's printed on your at-home test. If you can't figure out how to find the current shelf life of your particular at-home test, let us know. We'll help you figure it out if your test is still safe to use. And if your test is expired, there are lots of places around New York City to get new ones for free, like your local library. We're also handing them out at our pop-up vaccination and testing site in Queens Village, while supplies last. If you have any problems getting a test for yourself, please reach out to us at 917-818-2690. I'm also always here if you have any questions about COVID-19 in New York City. For more ways to get involved in your community, visit us at epicenter-nyc.com. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. And if you're not already a member, sign up today by using the link in our show notes. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. You can find more of their music on their website linked to in our podcast description.